Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health and longevity. With Richard Talk to Me Guy, and as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. I'd like to suggest going to SoundHealthPortal.com, scrolling down just a bit, clicking on the Watch How button, and you'll see a short video explaining how to do a vocal print, how to just the process of doing that. It's not very hard, but it's good to hear it once just to walk you through it to know what to do. Then go back to SoundHealthPortal.com, scroll down to some of the current campaigns, and a campaign is the possibility for you to run your voice through one of the software campaigns or software packages like BioDiet or PTSD, TBI, or neuroplasticity for showing your state of firing in the mental state and methylation cascade, and choose one of those packs or campaigns that's of interest to you. Click on that campaign and click the free voice analysis, and the system will walk you through submitting your recording. And you'll get an email with a good report. I always suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing the report, and that usually arrives in one to two hours. To hear and share replays of this show, about 30 to 40 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, scroll down that page, and you'll see this show at the top of the episodes page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours of shows there. Listening to podcasts is a lifestyle, so there's a lot of amazing information out there that people are producing. And today's guest is one of those. Robert Otis Williams is the inventor and developer of quantum code technology, sympathetic resonance technology, and out-on-the-edge technology. He's also author of the book, Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love. As an expert in the study of subtle energy engineering and its effect on physical systems, Robert's research has provided scientific breakthroughs in field-based technologies, consciousness, and human potential. His technologies change standard elementary particle flows and interactions, increase their energy and information efficiencies, generalizing from experimental data, the primary effects of the technologies on elementary particles and atoms appear to be enhanced electron information efficiency and increased levels of coherence, greater stability with electromagnetic, photon, and electron interaction, accelerated valence shell bonds, because these effects occur at such a basic physical level, the potential benefits for electronics, chemistry, biology, human health, and psychology are extensive. In addition to being an inventor and author, Robert has also enjoyed success as a musician and educator. He taught music at the university level and recorded and performed with such artists as the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, Paul Horn, and Charles Lloyd. In 1978, after a decade in the music industry, he served as executive director for Love Songs Productions, Inc., a motion picture and recording production company owned by Michael Love of the Beach Boys. After his near-death experience in 1979, his study of the relationships between particle physicality and the spaces between particles, or non-physical domains, led him to the discovery of the technology which he claims saved his life. He calls the discovery more of a revelation than anything else. After years of struggle, he suddenly comprehended the profound interconnectedness of nature and the innate intelligence at the foundation of all life. His book describes in raw detail how his life journey continued to turn from one direction to another, eventually leaving him struggling for his life, and the unexpected revelation which, through various means, has improved the quality of life for millions. Robert joins us to talk about Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love. Welcome, Robert. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. I'm going to start at a big point, and then we'll work all around it. It's like the quantum field. We might jump around, but really there is a flow here. Do you feel your years of transcendental meditation affected your near-death experience? It did. The reason is transcendental meditation, um, and I've tried various meditations, and I had tried various meditations before 
my near-death experience. Transcendental meditation, if you really learn it correctly and practice it correctly, is a completely effortless practice. So you're not holding on to a, a mantra. That's called japa, repeating a mantra. You're actually just effortlessly noticing or witnessing your thoughts as they arise. And instead of going with the thought, you just replace the thought with the mantra. And so I was familiar with this space between because transcendental meditation also enhanced my ability and I believe humans' ability to transcend. What does that mean? That means go beyond or go to something that is prior to a thought. Go to something that is most uh, profoundly unbounded. And, and the field of possibilities is often what that domain is called. So when I had been, since I had been practicing TM for years, when I um, died for, you know, in a clinical sense, um, was uh, the heart not beating and all of that for about 20, 30 minutes, the, the concept of something prior helped me find my subject, find my subject in the, t- in the sense of subjectivity, the witness, and everything else. And transcendental meditation is, is uh, and I believe there are other types of meditation. I'm not here just to say there's only one way. And indeed, I should say that we transcend every day, whether we know it or not. The transcendental domain is the silence between sound, and it's the basis for sound. So, yes, when I was in a higher, what I believe is a more whole uh, dimension or more whole reality of self, the practice of TM helped me uh, abstract that reality so that I can speak about it and investigate it after that event in 1979. And as a child, you were a little different in the sense that you might have had a spiritual path, but it might not look like what we would think of in a, in a churchly way or in a, in a belief way. You, as I recall from your book, spent a lot of time in the forest. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll – uh, we were talking prior to the show about the brilliance of Sherry Edwards and that you – I didn't know this, but you told me that her ear is actually structured differently than the average ear, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, uh, I didn't know the term when I was, until much later in my life, but I grew up clairvoyant, seeing things, particularly in forests and in natural uh, environments. I would just see the, the tree spirits and the, the plant devas, and they're called by many names. And uh, this was my uh, normal uh, condition every day or my normal, my normal um, perception of reality was inclusive of all the subtle beings. And uh, as Sherry's ear has been, uh, somebody looked in there, right, and said that you've got an unusual ear drum. And, and uh, about... Ten years ago, they did an MRI and a CT scan on my brain and noticed that my pineal gland was enlarged. 
Oh. And it, oh. the the doctors, you know, that didn't mean anything to them. You know, it just because they look at the pineal gland as a chemical producing gland. Uh, metaphysically, though, the pineal gland is associated with the third eye, and it explains why, uh, it, at least from that angle, it explains why I was always seeing things through my third eye along with my physical eyes. And um, so in, in the beginning parts of my life, that was a joy because I had this whole world of, uh, of friends in the forest uh, hmm. by myself without any other humans around. Uh, but then later, as I had to enter uh, school and society in various ways, it was, it was very difficult for me. It was very difficult for me to, to zero in on a physical phenomenon, only a physical phenomenon, because these other subtle aspects were always present, but I learned, and I, you could say I stuffed it, you know, yeah, I just uh, uh, had to, uh, uh, to, to communicate and quote-unquote attempt normalcy. <laughs> I'm raising my hand in the sense that I have my own issues in a positive way. Mm. So mm. one of the choices that I made, you went the quiet route, and I'll ask a question about that in a moment. I was, uh, after high school, I became a chef. And I didn't go to culinary school. I just trained under a mean German chef. But he was highly skilled. And so I chose to go into cacophony. Mm. Because a kitchen, what people don't, I know on TV where it's all tweezers and quiet and there's no shouting. No, this is like a working kitchen where there's a lot of noise. It's not an open kitchen. There's just a, a, a relentless, you know, you're trying to feed 300 people a night all while, you know, it's a bunch of noise back here between pans banging and people yelling at each other because they need that steak now or whatever it is. And for me, the noise was centering. I would move into a calm state. I was always angry. I mean, it was hard, but I would move into sort of not a Zen mode, but certainly a, the noise would hyper-focus me instead of causing me to go. Some people would go into a kitchen and be completely overwhelmed. Other people would come in. And, and we've seen you know, people like Anthony Bourdain on TV talk about the kitchen experience. It's hard and noisy, and you can have great coherence with a wonderful team. I was thinking about that as I was reading your book. Some of my favorite times were in kitchens that I've been in. I did it for about 20 years, where you get that amazing state of flow with a team in the kitchen. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's really quite amazing because it's still noisy, but you get the, into this flow state. But so for me, my choice is to go into that, and you brilliantly discovered TM. How did you, how did you find TM, or did it find you? Um, it was, it's probably both. Uh, you mentioned I was a musician, and I was third-year music major at Cal State Hayward, and um, I had injured my jaw in a bad accident when I was seven years old and messed up my TMJ and the bones around my jaw, and my teeth didn't grow in correctly and all of that, which... Uh, you know, in the 50s, they just, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> they just patched me up so I wasn't bleeding. The rest was up, you know, the body adjusted. Uh, but this then manifested as I chose to play the saxophone. And um, so here I am, second, third year of college, and tremendous pain in my jaw, tremendous pain, until one morning I... I was awakened and I could not open my mouth and it was a horrible something we you know we, we take for granted we can eat we can speak but my jaw was locked shut and it just wow freaked me out and I went and 
to the uh, my mom drove me to the ER and they shot me with something probably thorazine or some kind of relaxant, you know, right in there and oh, I could open my mouth, but they said something is really going on here. So they did X-rays and they found these bones that had been broken when I was a child. When you play the saxophone, you have to have an armature. You have to have your mouth and the muscles in your jaw. And actually, your whole face is involved. But particularly, the jaw comes forward and so forth. In that position, it puts strain on my uh, damaged uh, uh, jaw and temporal mandibular joint. And it caused pain, and then it would lock. And so third year of college, I realized, well, uh, sorry, let me go back. So there was a clinic in Berkeley, and it was a new clinic, the TMJ clinic, and they said, well, you know, looking at these x-rays, there's no way you can continue to play the saxophone because we can see if you put your jaw, if you come into that uh, position when you blow your horn, it's going to aggravate these nerves and these muscles will go into spasm and so forth. So he said, there's no, there's no uh, surgery or anything to correct this. So you'll just have to give up saxophone, you know. Hmm. And, wow. uh, you know, it's just like, you know, these are the 70s. This was the 70s. So he says, why don't you just pick up guitar, you know. So, but he didn't <laughs> know that my whole life yeah. was was centered around my music, my love of music, and my instrument was the saxophone and woodwinds, clarinet and flute and so forth. And so I went into a, a complete depression and meltdown because now what was I going to do with my life? Because I was so into being a professional musician and you know, at age 20, 21, <clears throat> I had seen my life in that direction, and now I had to give up the very main component of the direction, the main component of my life purpose because of a messed up job. Hmm. So I kept, uh, you know, I, I, I practiced less. The less I played, the less pain there was and the less chance of a, a jaw locking one night. But so I, I still kept going to, to Cal State as a music major and, and played because I did, didn't know what else, you know, I, you know I, I couldn't give it up. I didn't know what else to do. And one, just like out of a these kind of, interesting uh, Sherlock Holmes type foggy nights and you know you can't see that clearly and I was in the, the uh, in the music uh, room late at night um, went out to my car and I had received a ticket because I parked in the red zone because I couldn't see the red whatever it was foggy night so you know I'm all like Oh my! Now everything. Now I get this. You know, everything's going wrong here. You know, my life. In those days, you could go over to the campus security and pay your penalty. So I walked over there. You know, and walked in, and here was this very jovial um, <laughs> stereotype officer O'Brien type uh, campus security officer. Well, what brings you here tonight? Uh, and I said, Well, I parked in the red. And he says, Oh, well, we all make mistakes sometimes. And you know, let me just get your file. You know, and he walked. He looked. He he got up from his desk and he walked over to where the files were, to find the slip. And I'm standing there and I'm in front of his desk, and he had a photo that was facing his chair. This is a common thing. You know, you, you see people's desks and they have photos of their wives and their children and like that. And 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 so he, was a, I couldn't see the photo because I was on the other side of the desk. And something just grabbed, something just, I kept feeling like I should look at that photo. 
And I go, well, that's not polite. I'm thinking to myself, is this like rude to walk around and look at somebody's photo on their desk? It's probably his kids. I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. It was just an uncontrollable or, or just a strong pull to go and look at that photo. And sure enough, I walked around. Officer O'Brien hadn't returned. And I looked at the photo, and there was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the, in the photo. And something was alive in that photo. Something was vibrating. Something was unusual, let's say that. And so about that time, Officer O'Brien, I'm just making that name up, but he came back, and I go, is this? I go, who's this? He goes, well, that's Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, you know. The, he, um, he teaches, uh, he brought transcendental meditation to the world. And he says, and I go, do you meditate? He goes, oh, yeah. He says, I've been meditating for eight months, and I've sleep better, I sleep better, I have less stress and all this. <laughs> he says, no, you should try it out. It's, there's an a intro lecture uh, this coming Wednesday at Nickel John Hall. All the Cal State alumni know the hall I'm talking about. Hmm. Nicholson Hall, uh, you should go check it out. So that, so I did, and and that was the introduction into transcendental meditation, and I got initiated that Saturday. Went through the the steps, uh, paid my forty dollars at that time, and and uh, so so it was, and, and my first meditation reminded me of that blissful state of being in nature with the nature with mm-hmm. the nature spirit and it was that um path to the transcendent that uh includes traversing these different domains and because of my enlarged pineal gland or whatever mm-hmm. i had the most wonderful experience in that transcendental process and I saw gold light and I heard celestial sounds which we can talk about and then there was just this bliss just this prior existence of infinity and unboundedness so I knew that this meditation was for me and that's what started me meditating. I continued to play the saxophone, but not as much, you know. And ironically, all my dreams as a musician began to come true. And that, I can, if you want, I can just jump over. But please, I, I want to answer. I, I think I know where you're going. Know. Please, yes. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> so. Uh, this, most of your uh, listeners have heard that the Beatles uh, spent time with Maharishi in Rishikesh, India, and uh, learned transcendental meditation. So, so did the Beach Boys and a lot of other celebrities, Donna Ben and Mia Farrow, you know. So the Beach Boys, uh, this was in 1970. Three or four, no, 1975. Sorry, uh, especially Mike Love wanted to promote transcendental meditation by recording an album, a new Beach Boy album, on the university that Maharishi had founded. This was called MIU, Maharishi International University, and in the at, at that time it was fully accredited transferred my credits from Cal State, packed up my bags from the Bay Area, and went to Fairfield, Iowa, and began as a student there at MIU. The next semester, my second semester there, the Beach Boys built their own recording studio, and were recording an album, and uh, the producer said, well, now it's time to add the horns and somebody said which, which, which was a great 
uh, you could call it luck for me, somebody said, you know, you don't have to fly in saxophone players from L.A. There's one right here on campus. He, you know, Robert Williams, he plays, the, you know, he plays the mean saxophone. And he says, well, the producer said, well, we have to audition and everything. We can't just. So I auditioned. I want to say this one part because the audition was Brian Wilson singing uh, a tune, just saying like da 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 da, and he wanted to know if I could repeat that, you know, on my saxophone without having to read music because that's how mm. he download he downloaded these incredible songs all at once. And he would download them so quickly that if the musicians were not fast enough with their ear to listen to him and translate that into their instrument and include the vocal harmonies, uh, harmonies um, then it would slow Brian down. And so I had a really good ear. I didn't have perfect pitch, but I had a good ear. So, so Brian thing like that a couple times and I I nailed it you know I I played exactly what he wanted me to play and that was that got me the gig so the next wow. thing I know I'm sorry I recorded on that album I had uh, run out of money to continue to go to uh, MIU and the Beach Boys I started talking to Mike Love after a session who was kind of in charge at the time because Brian was going through a tough period. And and I said, well, you know, could can I just join you guys, you know? <laughs> can I just be? <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't quite that easy, but he checked with the producer. He checked, so, yes, that started me uh, touring with the Beach Boys and, and playing with them as a sideman, as a saxophone player. So I moved to Santa Barbara, where Mike Love lived, and the Beach Boys were all around that area in L.A. and uh, uh, Malibu. And uh, so that, so here I am, you know, I'd given up. I was basically suicidal when I heard from the, the TMJ experts that I could never play the saxophone again. And here I am. I could play for a couple hours without too much pain playing with the Beach Boys. And this is when, you know, there was, there, they were in competition with the Beatles as being the number one group in the world. It was a dream come true, and I can I have a lot of stories to, to tell about them. But that's what got me into the Beach Boy scene. Uh, and uh, and if I if I may, so when you guys are on stage playing good vibrations, <laughs> yes. you weren't kidding. It wasn't just a title. That's right. You actually wanted to project or use the carrier wave of the sound to create coherence in the audience and create good vibrations. I'll just say all that in the string. <laughs> you absolutely are talking about one of the most profound examples of group consciousness coherence. And I bet you we've all been at concerts where usually towards the end, where everybody gets into this coherent, collective vibration that is extremely powerful. And, and uh, it, 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 so as a musician playing good vibrations to 20,000 people, yes, we would get into that zone, and it was the transcendent, being alive and expressed through the music and through the hearts of the musicians and with the hearts of the audience all together. And, you know, uh, there was four of us uh, in the horn section. It didn't happen every, it didn't happen every night. It didn't happen every time, Richard. But once we got into that zone, as a musician, you just know it. You're all, you're in sync. You're just, you're not thinking. You're just playing the music 
and you're feeling this amazing togetherness and coherence and harmonious relationship, but we feel it. Brian would be key. We feel it and we'd look at each other like, here it comes. And we'd start with good vibrations. In those days, everybody had big lighters. Now, now, now everybody has their phones, but in those days, so that the lights would go off and everybody had their big lighters going back and forth, you know. I'm thinking about good vibration. And it was just blissful. It was, uh, it was just a sublime experience. And I'll guarantee you that during those moments of collective coherence, Nobody was thinking, oh, I wonder if that guy over there uh, is a Democrat or a Republican. I wonder if that person over there agrees with, uh, you know, my philosophy. Nobody was thinking of their differences. We were one thing, 20,000 audience and 12 of us on stage and the sound crew, and everybody was one thing happening. And that's a powerful example of how humanity can actually affect um, global consciousness. I know that's quite a leap, but it's true because we are interconnected. And if um, there's a, one of my um, scientific partners, Dean Radin, has a device called the Random Number Generator. And I'll just say that that RNG actually can measure changes in world consciousness. And uh, I'll skip the mechanics of that, but for instance, before 9-11, the, the RNGs went off the charts. So, and then, like when the uh, verdict of O.J. Simpson, events like that where there's a lot of people thinking one thought or thinking a similar thought. It also happens, you know, like the Super Bowl, like that. So you get a lot of people that are in harmony with each other. Uh, the physicists call it constructive interference. There is a, there is a non-local effect, meaning it extends out from, well, back to the Beach Boys. It extended out from the uh, Fillmore, where we were playing, it, and, and, and uh, the Transcendental Meditation folks have done research showing that when a group of meditators get together, it affects crime rate in that city or community, and so forth. And when Sherry Edwards is using sound in a very specific way, she is uh, allowing that innate power of love to more freely come forth to, to heal, to inspire, to bring energy. This is something that every human has the ability to access. And it's why I admire what you guys are doing and, and, and your work. We are sound. We are vibration. We are light. It's just a different word for different velocities of frequencies. And, you know, if we're really, really good, maybe Sherry is probably better, but the average range of sound that we can listen to or we can hear and register a sound is only 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Usually it's more like 40 hertz. That's what that means 40 by 40 vibrations per second to 15,000. But did you know that um, dolphins can hear up to 150,000 150, hertz? And there's a moth called the greater wax moth that can hear up to 300,000 hertz. So we can't hear wow. those sounds. We cannot hear those sounds, but they are there. So these, and then the whole, you have a, a tone. That tone, unless it's a, in a very 
controlled laboratory electronic sine wave generator, that tone, even in my voice, anybody's voice, carries the harmonics. And it's very, it follows sacred geometry, it follows this amazing uh, subject of uh, geometry and the relationships or ratios of life. So when I sing the note C, there's also an octave above, and you know this. Then it goes to the perfect fifth, the fifth above, then it goes to the fourth, the third, the minor third, the sub-minor third, the third. These overtones are carried on that fundamental tonic note. And it's really the overtones that affect not only the timbre, so that a clarinet playing the note C sounds different than a violin playing the note C. It's because of these overtones. But in my um, belief and theoretical framework, it's in these overtones that also carry information of life, carry information that the body can use to heal if the sounds are, you could say, correctly uh, aligned with uh, the innate intelligence, aligned with nature, aligned with that which has always been prior to the human mind. And uh, these overtones uh, are also in coherence when we're in a collective zone experience at a concert. Or my theory is at some point, as enough of us pay attention to our hearts and are, are alert for opportunities to be in a state of love, which is a vibration, which is a vibration with harmonics, subharmonics, superharmonics. When we're in that phase coherence of heart-based love, it has so much power, so much power, and we get groups together. That's the theory of the, you could say, that is one trajectory of the human condition that I am looking forward to because it is more intrinsic and more stable. It is something that is always there. And the other thing that humans have gotten involved with in the category of selfishness or cruelty or abuse and destructive tendencies, those, those harmonic, that's like a, a really out of tune piano that's not being played well, right? You know, and if, if, if you don't know the difference, then you get caught up in those kind, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of music, you could say, that, that kind of sound complex. Uh, you mentioned I, I taught the high school music and, and university music. But at a high school, you know, everybody, first day at school, everybody plays their instruments, and it just sounds horrible. All that they need to start is just a reference for intonation. Everybody be quiet and listen to this note, and we're going to tune up to this note. Usually it's an A440. Everybody tunes up. And that's half the battle right there. That's half the educational process of being a musician is to play in tune and play in tune with the others around you. And uh, humans are not quite in tune yet. Because if we were in tune with it, yeah. if, we are, if we were really in tune with the transcendental reality of how nature was created and how it is maintaining without man-made influences, if we were in tune with that, there would not be the ability to think a thought of cruelty 
because that phase coherent state that I call love is also interconnected to all others. And so the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and there's various versions of that in all the major religions, indigenous religions, you know, we would then know that if we damage somebody else, if we hurt somebody else, if we are cruel, that it is our own self that we hurt the most because of that interconnectedness. So um, humanity is in a phase transition. It's got a ways to go because there is yeah. still suffering. But well, I and, and, part, and, and, and I go back to the first time I heard Bruce Lipton lecture when he first written his book, Biology of Belief. Yes. And and one of the things that he talked about, it was a funny lecture. It was a, it was truly when his book first came out and he was giving a lecture to a group that I attended. And he was showing us how DNA and RA swinged and he had PVC pipe kind of glued together to make this weird modely thing. And it was it was pretty funny. He was trying to show us how when it touches and how it all interacts. But my takeaway from what he talked about and coined the, frame, coined the phrase later, in my mind, was our cells are listening. In that what he was talking about, one of the things that he spoke to was that our cells have receptor sites looking for hormones. And if the wrong hormone goes there, it'll just bump it to the next, you know, the hormone will keep going until it finds the key that it fits into. Each cell does not just like, yes, sure, come over here. Each cell has to be set up with a key or a receptor site for that substance. And what he went on to expand that thinking of was that our cells are aware of everything on a level. So what you're talking about, whether it's a scent or a sound or an emotion or all sorts of things can have an effect on a cell. And when you're talking about sound, and that's why I've always been a fan of Sherry's work, and I think it's so amazingly brilliant that your body drove you to play a musical instrument that you had to put your face on every time and try and vibrate that muscle back into a state of health, that joint, hmm. is that our cells are listening. They're listening. It's that simple. It's not complex. Yes, it's very complex, but our cells are really paying attention. So they're paying attention. We're just bags of cells walking around taking in data. I mean that in a kinder way than it might sound, but in a certain way that's true. So the idea of you having a crowd, being part of a group, being part of the Beach Boys, playing to an audience of 20,000, and the Fillmore, that's a whole other conversation. Wow. Um, you know, that you're, that music is intentionally, the group's intentional is to go out and have this effect on the crowd and getting them to a state of coherence is still slightly mind-blowing. But it's all about ourselves or listening. They really are. They're paying attention. And exactly what you're talking about, when we go into the forest, if we pause and just be quiet for a minute, it's amazing. It's wondrous. Absolutely amazing and absolutely wondrous. Can I share with you, uh, I think, one of the most profound experiences I had, or revelations I had, after my near, right after the near-death experience. Oh, great. Yes, please. So I'm in, so I'm going to skip. Uh, so I, I, I fell down and I'm out of my body and I'm in these higher domains. But I want to talk about when I was first entering my body again. I re-entered my body, heart started to beat. And so I remember I was living in Santa Barbara, very beautiful springtime, March, by the ocean. And I remember just laying there and listening to nature. Listening, we had a garden outside. We listened to the little insects and the birds and the sound of the breeze on the trees and then the sound of the ocean. And I 
I just realized at that moment that this planet was intended to be a, a planet in harmony, a planet without suffering. I realized something that, because I was breathing, and I'd always thought that, you know, you take a breath in automatically and you exhale automatically, and that's like 100%, 50% inhale, 50% exhale. <clears throat> but then, and this was not an intellectual uh, addition to my network of memories, but I realized that actually our inhalation and exhalation together are only 50%. The other 50%, so what are we exhaling? We are exhaling carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, right? That's something that the plants use. The plants, you could say, inhale or take that carbon dioxide, and they exhale, if you will, oxygen. So here we are in this cooperative relationship with nature. Every breath is in cooperation and in line, aligned with what nature is giving us. Does nature give us polluted oxygen from a healthy <laughs> garden, from a uh, a forest full of greenery that has not been messed up with chemicals or whatever? No. Nature gives us exactly what we need in terms of a physical chemical molecule. Um, uh, and so we are in a 50-50 deal kind of on that level. We give the carbon dioxide and other things Nature takes it, uses it for plants to grow and become beautiful blossoms, and we take their excess or their uh, what they don't need, which is oxygen. And but you see, this is where we've messed up. Nature is not in its natural state giving us bad oxygen or bad. Uh, molecules, we are the ones that are giving nature the pollution. And so it, it, it just, back to laying on, laying there and just breathing and realizing that I was breathing in oxygen from the garden and the, 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 the trees and even the ocean creates oxygen when it, when, through the waves and all of this miraculous uh, harmonious phenomenon which we, most of us, take for granted, nature. And I was alive because of it. I was alive because of it. And gosh, that revelation, you know, it's just like, duh, do we want to mess with nature? It's got it all worked out. What we want to do is align with nature. Allow nature's innate intelligence to not be separated from ourselves, but to realize that we are one with it and use those information fields of energy, those sounds of, that have carrier waves of information that are about fullness and about creative potential and about life force. And ultimately, if I may, it's about love. And oh, there's so many directions we could go, but we're getting close to the end. So I don't want to dive. Oh, there are so many great things we could dive into. I can already see we're going to do a show too, where we're actually going to spend time talking about quantum code technology. <laughs> but we're not doing that hmm. now. Um, although I would like you to come back for a moment and talk talk about because you were the whole thing we're talking about we're talking about this but this is a very different way of expressing it you talk about well actually I read that in your intro about enhanced electron information efficiency and increased levels of coherence 
Could you talk about it, that part of it, which is all the same thing, that the acronym for that could be love, but let's talk about it from that perspective, the enhanced electron information efficiency and increased levels of coherence. Could you talk about that part of it, that direction of view on it for a moment? Yes. Um, there is a law of thermodynamics uh, that says uh, everything is going to decay. Everything is going to lead to the maximum disorder, the law of entropy. And so that's a quote-unquote law. So if you leave, you know, uh, an apple or a stick, eventually the laws of nature are going to break that down to the highest state of randomness of, of dust and whatever. But there is also a law of what Bill Tiller, who was one of my mentors, mm. the chairman of the Department of Material Science at Stanford, and a brilliant, brilliant human being with a golden heart, there is also a law of negative entropy or a law of life that says we're not going to all just break down. We are actually can tune into a law of coherence and a law that is negative entropy that enhances each cell, like you said, enhances the potential of each cell. And so that there's less loss of energy from moment to moment, whatever the system is, a human system, an electronic system, there's less loss of, of uh, the, there's less loss of electrons through conductors. We've already seen that with this law of negative entropy. And there's less loss of prana or life force with this level of coherence. And so that's the basis of the technologies with the help of William Tiller and many other brilliant scientists that we are developing, which is, again, our birthright. This is something that we do not need to add to society. We don't need to add it to a human being or to a plant. We just need to reduce the interferences to that which is already there. And that is a, a function of, uh, it is a function of the heart. And it is a function, and I'm saying this, is a function of the frequencies of our heart chakras. And it gets into that whole conversation about carrier waves and harmonics in our hearts our non-physical heart chakras, and even in the physical heart, there are frequencies that are going out and they are completely in harmony, in uh, sympathetic resonance with nature itself, and we can build on that uh, already existing uh, relationship, and that's what we've been calling quantum code technology and sympathetic resonance technology and some other names. And you can almost, I've spent a lot of time in nature and uh, grew up near a forest that I would wander in, and you can almost feel, oh, that's a whole other show, but I'll say it, that when you go into nature and you actually relax and spend a few minutes on a rock just not thinking, you can almost feel the area around you go, oh, wow, that's great. You got it. You know, it's really quite yes. extraordinary because nature, nature almost goes, oh, wow, we don't have to work on this one. That's incredible. That's great. Come on. <laughs> and the whole realm can relax around you because it doesn't have to, like, try and bring you in. It just you're there, and it's like, oh, wow, because I've been in situations with animals in, in the wild where – Wow, you know it could be bad if you are in an aggressive state. And I've uh, I've also been a photographer for a long time, and I I've had some of these experiences. But I've I've known other photographers who talk about 
they're out somewhere in Alaska, let's say, and they're you know hanging out someplace for a photograph. I just read a piece about a by a photographer who said this bear came up within you know not far from where he was poised to take a photograph, came up, went into the water, caught a fish, came up, laid down and ate fish, knew he was there because he was within yards of him. And then just like wandered off. And I feel I photographer, and he's a guy who spent a great deal of time in nature and is it very much with nature. He's an advocate of nature. He's he's a photographer in National Geographic. And particularly spends a lot of time in Alaska photographing amazing wonders of Alaska and whales. And so he's very accustomed to being in a state of we might call it bliss. Uh, but, you know, in some calm state, because of what he's doing, because he has to relax and it's going to take sometimes a long time to get the photograph you want. But he wrote this piece about this bear that came up and he, even he was surprised, like, wow, <laughs> this bear just came up and like hung out and laid there and ate and took a nap. And I'm all trying to get a photograph. So it's an amazing state to be in coherence with nature. I like that. It is. And, it, and it's, uh, I believe, it's the direction we're going. Although you listen to the news and there's all, they're, they're still suffering and there's still all kinds of things that um, are, are, you could say, dishonoring uh, nature, disrespecting nature. But I'd like to, I know we're getting towards the end, but there's a, there's a fascinating, another law of nature that's fascinating and that is phase transitions or paradigm shifts always happen suddenly so like the caterpillar's life is relatively what they I think they said 30 times longer than the transition to the butterfly so you have in caterpillar like years so thirty years, and then there's like ten minutes, and then there's the chrysalis, and then the butterfly. So uh, quantum shifts also are sudden. Quantum shifts of states of mass are not gradually. You know, one state of uh, one state of mass doesn't gradually change to another. So uh, even though there is tremendous chaos and tremendous disorder happening, there, that's actually a sign that things can change quickly because that mm -hmm. is a law of nature. That is a law of nature. That's great. That's a, a great place to end ish but there's going to be a part two i already know there's going to be a part two i will ask how can people find more about your work and where would you like them to find your book the books on amazon love is the power and uh i i am starting a new company we've been working on this for seven years uh, we don't have a website yet, but I have a website, robertcotiswilliams.net, and you can sign up. There's a place there for a mailing a newsletter. We'll, we'll keep you posted. And uh, so those are the, the websites, Robert Otis Williams, Otis, O-D-U-S, O-D-U-S, robertotiswilliams.net, or quantumcodetechnology.com. They both go to the same place, and we'll keep you posted because we're about ready to increase the level of joy and love. At least that's our purpose, and that's what we hope to accomplish in the next few years. Wonderful. Thank you, Robert. I knew that was going to be an adventure. I was already feeling it in the quantum field. I can say that out loud now. <laughs> that was Thank great. you, Richard. Thank you very My much. Pleasure. And everybody else have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>